Hello and welcome to Carbon Dialogue, a forum to discuss all things sustainable. I'm your host Siddharth Das Gupta, bringing you green perspectives from industry experts, academicians, and seasoned practitioners. Carbon Dialogue aims to break down pressing issues in the climate space and understand the solutions needed to tackle them. As an avid learner of the space, I want to reach out to all the curious souls who want to make a difference and be more conscious. Let's change the world one conversation at a time. You can follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Hi, everyone. Hope you're doing good. Today, we have with us uh, Samir Quatra. He works with NRDC. He directs research and analysis that promotes clean energy, energy access, and sound climate policy in India. He has over two decades of multi-sectoral professional experience working in India and the U.S. prior to joining NRDC. Samir worked for the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, where he sought to improve energy efficiency in buildings. He became interested in environmental issues while working for ICICI Prudential back in India, where he witnessed how impoverished people are most vulnerable to climate change impacts, despite contributing little to the cause. Samir also holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Indian National Institute of Technology. an mba in finance and marketing from the indian institute of management and a masters degree in environmental management from the yale school of forestry and environmental studies he's based in nrdc's washington's office and uh, he also brings a unique blend of working in two different economies both of them quite influential and quite powerful when any of these countries speak on a global forum people listen Whenever India says something, people listen. U.S. says something, people listen for obvious reasons. And uh, Samir is one of those rare breed who has actually worked in both the countries, studied in both the countries, have been an active player in both the countries' uh, policy making, and now enjoys working in pretty much both the countries. Being sort of a, I would say, a bilateral guy from whom people would like to take advices in order to make sure that their policies are robust. So thanks a lot Samir for taking your time out. I know you're extremely busy but this really means a lot not just to us at our podcasting team but for people who are really passionate about different topics within energy transition, cool roofs, buildings, sustainable infrastructure and I know that a lot of these topics are very close to your heart. while you are taking care of the entire india portfolio back at nrdc and uh, you have been you have been doing pretty uh, amazing job i would say in the past couple of years i was just going through your uh, blogs and i was just going through your uh, the kind of work which you have been doing for all this while i mean honestly few of those uh, reports were really eye opening for me for example india makes progress in its climate goals and how exactly the mobilizing of equity implementation ambition at cop 27 and i mean it's like the if I would actually request my listeners to go and check out Samin's blogs and all his writings. I think it's freely available at NRDC's portal. You'll be immensely enlightened with so many different things, which is obviously it's a teamwork. But then, thanks for all these nuggets of information, Samin. And I'm welcoming you all over again. And how do you feel today? It's a sunny day out there, just before uh, holidays. The office is about to close. Are you, are you supposed to go out during your holidays? Are you going out with your family? Are, are you staying in the states? What are your plans? Hi, Sadhat. First of all, hello to everyone, and thank you for the very kind introduction. 
if anyone who's listening gets a sense that, wow, Samir must be you know, living the dream, worked in India, worked in the U.S., is working on both countries, two of the largest democracies in the world, you know, addressing one of the most pressing challenges in the world. Believe me, I feel the same. You know, I feel so grateful to be in this unique role, to be in this unique position, to be able to contribute, to be able to do my bit, to help make a difference to you know this most wicked problem that humanity has faced, I suppose, you know, climate change. So thank you for all of that. Thank you for the shout out to your audiences to read our blogs. A lot of that is teamwork. So, you know, even if you'll see those in my name, a bunch of folks have worked on it. So grateful to my colleagues and co-workers at Natural Resources Defense Council. I feel great. I feel optimistic. I feel hopeful. I feel that we have a clear pressing challenge in front of us, but we also have plans and we're determined to make a difference. Speaking, you know, broadly, but particularly, you know, looking forward to the holidays. Of course, you know, it's been a challenging year after reopening from COVID lockdowns for almost two years. This year was full of travel, getting back to meet people. It's sunny today, but, you know, said the forecast says that it's going to be stormy, freezing rain, snow, frigid temperatures. But I'd rather have a cold winter than, you know, a hot one. So I'm okay and accepting of, of the climate. Mm, great. So are you, are you staying or are you visiting? Are you traveling during the winters? I have a bit of travel plans. I have a nine-year-old daughter. She's very keen to see the Statue of Liberty. So <laughs> we'll go to New York City on um, Christmas weekend and check it out. But otherwise, we're just at home. Looking at how exactly Thursday, Friday looks, it's going to be really bad. And I'm assuming that maybe Christmas Eve after a long time might be a white Christmas because it's they are forecasting like real gusts and snowstorms on 24th. So... Okay, while we talk about a lot of stuff, this, this episode is dedicated towards a lot of discussions around clean energy, about cities, resilience, about different aspects of making an ecosystem more uh, habitable, how exactly we are making sure of that and what exactly your thoughts are around it and what's happening in India in different contexts and what exactly you are thinking in terms of where exactly these things are going. So we will start with pretty much clean energy right now, and which includes both renewable energy and energy efficiency. So I just wanted to have like kickstart this just to check with you what exactly you see. I mean, we are in 2022. What do you see like the landscape in India and the world looking like? Very interesting times. We are in the middle of a global energy transition. So if you look at previous century, it was driven empowered by fossil fuels. And I'm not sure, you know, if there was any particular year or date when the realization struck that fossil fuels are limited resources and will one day run out. But there have been shocks to the global economy that spur us into thinking innovatively. One of those was, you know, back in the 70s, there was an oil embargo and people started thinking about conservation of energy. That sparked a moment for you know, saving energy and maybe early inklings of renewable energy as well. And yet, you know, there wasn't enough seriousness to a whole-scale energy transformation until more recently, you know, when climate change, scientists around the world sounded the warning that we are living 
with a very fast-changing climate, fast meteorological timescale, of course. You know, globally, species are getting extinct. We see the indicators in everywhere we look, basically, in the atmosphere, in the ocean, in the Arctic ice, in the glacier melt. I think that was another trigger to look at how we power our economies. And probably in the, in the early 2000s, renewable energy gained a lot of support more investment in research. And now we see that for the last several years, renewable energy has been the dominant form of capacity addition globally. So you know, if you look at any of the last five years, new capacity added uh, for power generation has been renewables rather than fossil fuels. And this trend is expected to continue. In fact, IEA, the International Energy Agency, projects that in the next five years, the world will add as much renewable energy as it has in the last 20 years. So you see that the rate of growth is accelerating. It's becoming steeper already. And by 2030, renewable energy will be the dominant source of powering this planet. Just think about it. You know, that's like such a huge, huge transformation from reliance almost exclusively on fossil fuels, coal, oil, more recently natural gas, to being majorly powered through renewable energy, that's remarkable you know, in such a short span of time, pretty much in the last decade and a half. So where is this transformation being felt the most? You know, and that is India, China, United States, Europe. These are the leading countries. India, even more than the others, I would say, you know, India and China, perhaps, because India's energy needs are increasing year on year. India is still a relatively young country. If you look at the median age in India is, I believe, less than 28 years. So if you have to picture an average Indian, you know, she will be younger than me, definitely, probably you as well. So that's the future of the country. You know, these are the people who already are aware of climate change who want to make a difference, they're socially connected, they care about, you know, issues like environment, conservation of nature. And fortunately, for the most part, climate change has been a very well-accepted issue in India. The science has been accepted across the political spectrum. Successive governments in India have only gone on to strengthen and bolster actions on climate change. So, yeah, to go back to, you know, your question of how's the landscape, I think the landscape is green and getting greener by the day. And uh, renewable energy is going to be dominant. Energy efficiency is powerful resource, if you think about it, but it is invisible. You don't see, you know, an energy efficiency power plant anywhere. It's because it's not something you pay it's something you save, so you don't see it physically. But energy efficiency can be equally potent, equally powerful, especially in a country like India, you know, where our ethos, you know, I grew up as a kid you know, in a small town in Punjab, North India. We were taught to switch off the lights as soon as we leave the room, you know, switch off the fans and keep you know, our air conditioners only to the level that is strictly needed. So we have a conservation ethos, you know, for a long time, going back generations. We've grown through acute realizations of resources being limited. So I think energy efficiency is gaining focus in India as well. There is a lot more 
that is needed to make it visible, to make it tangible, to have goals around it. But we are on our way, I hope. That's quite refreshing to know that we are on the way. And honestly, I was having a chat with one of these professors in um, Princeton University, Professor L.K. Weber, and she was very optimistic about India's footsteps. And, and I see that thing echoing here as well. But honestly, I would uh, I would have like some few different views coming from my set of beliefs and kind of experiences I've had with the policymakers. Yes, there is a lot of progress happening. Yes, there are a lot of different sectors which are like really trying to make sure that they cross cut each other in order to make sure that there's energy prosperity happening. But and also I totally agree that the, the current ministry is also the current ruling party is also quite pro all these initiatives. However, I feel that there's a lot of talks happening much without a substantial amount of actions. It's pretty much what's happening at COPs. And it just disappoints me pretty much every COP. I was in Scotland and and in, even in Sharmal Sheikh. I mean, I'm just looking through the patterns. There's so much of rhetoric which is happening in the background, but then there's so little action which is really translating those those words and I, and those promises. And I totally agree with you, Samir, what you said that, yes, the kind of journey which we have traveled, India has traveled since like almost since independence. It's been quite a long, like a huge journey. Yes, a lot of hiccups were there and India has surpassed it all. I'm hopeful as you are. I'm hopeful as we see a lot of great things happening. But again, there's a very important aspect which I feel is called as behavioral change and which cannot happen overnight. A lot of energy efficiency comes from behavior change. A lot of micro behavior change rather than macro behavior change. And a lot, and India, as everybody knows, that it's an immensely dense country with, I don't know, maybe 46 vernacular languages coming from 26 odd states, 28 odd states. It's a shame. I'm actually, I don't even know how many states right now because it's pretty much every day there is a new state carved out from an old block of state. So now the thing is, yes, things are happening, but I, I would have loved if things would have been a little bit more fast paced. But yes, I totally agree with you. This is where we are headed. Uh, India is headed. So how do you see the US helping India in, in meeting any of its goals, if at all? Do you have any views around that? Sure. Yes. So first of all, I share your frustration, you know, with the cops. I've been to some of them myself for 28 years. Countries around the world have been negotiating and, you know, people, youngsters who so an average Indian is younger than the cop, if you think about it. And yet, has there been real progress? Has there been any decrease in GHG concentrations in the atmosphere? Not really. You know, if you measure it just through GHG emissions and how we are doing on global warming, probably not. And yet, it's the only option. It's like to say about democracy. It's the worst form of government except for every other. Mm. You know, COP is a democratic process where every country has its say, and there are real differences in opinion. Of course, there is a question of we didn't cause it, so why should we, you know, fix it? Which is very well justified. You know, countries like India that have a very low per capita emission mm. uh, did not, if you uh, look at historical emissions, India and several large countries are minuscule compared to the US, Europe, and pretty much every con developed country. 
And yet, India and developing countries are the future and are growing and have such a significant impact on the carbon trajectory. So both points are kind of valid. You know, it's very difficult to have developed countries be agreeing to you know, pay for every damage climate change because a lot of that happened when people weren't even aware of climate change. So, you know, all of this is 50, 60, 70 years, 100 years of industrial emissions. And yet, you know, it's only fair that polluter pays. So, for example, you know, at this year's COP, there was a big focus on loss and damage funding, as you would have seen. And I'm personally very heartened by a breakthrough, you know, of developed countries agreeing to discuss and set up a fund to pay for climate-related damages. This is a breakthrough in negotiations because for a long time, developed countries just wouldn't accept that they are the reason for these damages that are happening and they have any culpability or they have any responsibility. So that's kind of the global context of you know, the climate negotiations. However, I also share your concern. You know, I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful but I'm also concerned because that concern is real. You know, we are already at unsustainable levels of warming. The world already is on a trajectory to warm by more than two degrees, close to 2.5 if you look at the recent IPCC assessment just before the COP. That is catastrophic. We cannot allow that to happen. So, therefore, while you know, India has done a lot, as you mentioned in one of the reports we published, India's actions on climate change, Every country in the world needs to do more. I don't think, you know, any country can say our job is done. Now it's good luck and it's up to the rest of you. But India can do more with increased investment, finance. All said and done, India is still, you know, if in per capita GHG terms, India is still, you know, relatively way lower than many Western countries. In per capita emissions, India is way lower than the world average. So India needs financial investment. India needs technical collaborations. U.S. and India have been allied for decades, if you think in terms of ideology and you know, democratic principles, but have come closer over the last two decades, I would say, 20 years plus. And there is there have been a host of initiatives you know, on U.S.-India clean energy finance collaboration has been in place you know, since 2008-2009, so you know, 15 years growing stronger. It has changed contours for the last few years. In the previous administration, there was a focus on you know, all fuels and all energy, but now it's thankfully going back to more clean energy, renewable energy. There is potential for higher investment from U.S. institutions in India, because India is a growing market for renewable energy, there is an opportunity for greater collaboration on technology. For example, we talked about energy efficiency, how to make buildings more efficient, how to make equipment more efficient. A lot of cutting-edge research happens in U.S. labs, in U.S. private companies. If you look at electric mobility, you know, if you look at the grid of the future, upgrading the grid to be able to integrate large-scale renewables. A lot of cutting-edge research is happening here in the U.S., so there is scope for collaboration you know, between the two countries. But at the same time, I, I wouldn't just frame it as how can U.S. help India, but how can the two countries work together? India has this tremendous you know, large market, this huge demand, growing demand. India also has skilled manpower 
as you and I know, you know, everybody in India, you know, young folks growing in India thinks of getting some kind of technical education. And we produce, I think, more engineers than most other countries in the world together. So India has resources. India has skilled manpower. India also has uh, a lot more diversity and a diverse experience that it can share with states in the U.S. So there is a bi-directional opportunity for collaboration. But broadly, if you look at it from you know, the COP and responsibility point of view, yes, a lot of you know, investment has to come from the Western world to developing countries, including in India. That's good that you mentioned the grid. The point about the grid compatibility and how much the grid can be able to adapt. I'm not sure whether uh, NRDC is uh, involved. Maybe I'm naive in even asking this question, but I think it's good to know whether the Green Grid Initiative is GGI, is NRDC a part of GGI, where the once and one world one grid was announced um, by Prime Minister Johnson and, and PM Modi in Glasgow. I know that for sure because, I mean, we, we drafted the entire note, the policy note, which was being announced on that day. So that's also one of the reasons why I was there. So it is quite an exciting opportunity while it is a little slowed down, to be honest, uh, since the time it has been announced. There are pilot grids, feasibility studies, which are happening right now. But again, I'm not sure. if is NRDC, Are you guys uh, connected in this, kind, this initiative in GGI? A bit, especially with the International Solar Alliance, you know, NRDC is an yeah. international organization. Mm -hmm. So we've been more knowledge partners rather than, you know, any formal contractual relationship. But yes, we've been conversing with them about the opportunities, one world, one solar, one grid. Tremendous expertise that India has in growing renewable energy and how it can transcend and can be applicable in other geographies, you know, for example, in Africa and Latin America, entire solar belt. It can be game-changing, can have a transformative impact on carbon emissions in the world. So it's a good initiative. But of course, you know, like you mentioned, the proof of the pudding is in eating it, right? Implementation is everything. I think generally, globally, not just talking about any particular political group, but we are, humanity in general is very good in you know, making announcements. But we are we lag behind a little in following up and implementing and acting. Mm. And honestly, uh, people like you who have been actually in the, at the forefront of public policy, policy making, and people like uh, who are working within the think tanks have such an amazing control, power, influence, whatever I may add, like objectives to it. You guys have such a great role to play. I just can't put more stress on this particular point. You have an, a very important job at hand, just like you guys, a lot of other people are. But then again, as they say that you just need uh, a cascading effect. It has to be a domino effect. It cannot be overturned. It's a global problem. Everybody needs to work, just like what you said. It's not one country's problem. It's not my problem or your problem. It's everyone's problem. That's perfectly laid out. So while going through the entire clean energy in the landscape of India and the world, while you are taking care of the India portfolio, what are the unique opportunities for India to set up a clean energy-based development ecosystem? So while we know it is very, like this is one of the most dense countries I'm aware of, and I think people who are listening would also agree to that, not just because of the kind of population India has, but also the sheer density, the kind of land. I mean, there are few states 
like Uttar Pradesh, which are bigger than few countries in Latin America. So it is just mind boggling. So considering such a dense, diverse country, and it's a huge country, I don't still don't know why India hasn't divided uh, itself into different time zones. It's a pretty huge country. What exactly a unique opportunity for you would, would you think for India for that entire clean energy based development ecosystem? There are opportunities in every single aspect, you know, every unit of political jurisdiction that you look at, right from villages to cities, small towns to states to acting at the national level. There are opportunities in every which way we use energy, you know, transportation, cooking, agriculture. What I am particularly excited about is working at the village level. So we did some ground level research. 2019-20 in villages to see how do people interact with energy or with any productive use that has a climate footprint, folks in villages. And then are there opportunities to either transition or introduce new solutions, new technologies that have a lower carbon footprint? So very broad mandate, just look at how do people live what is the carbon impact? What is the energy impact? And what can be done differently? And then we did pilots in two villages, one in Gujarat, one in Rajasthan, to see what is the uptake, what is the interest in actually moving to low energy solutions. It's not surprising to anyone that folks living in the villages prioritize money savings over you know, anything else, because obviously, you know, first of all, it's, it's a question of sustenance of livelihoods. So we did, you know, analysis on more efficient appliances, for example, solar-based technologies, not just one or two, not like, you know, you go and switch incandescent lamps to LEDs and it's done. Those are all great initiatives, but holistically at the village level, provide a switch of options and then see if there is interest. Does it lead to, first of all, you know, saving money? Because that's really important. Does it lead to increasing productivity? Uh, because that's the other consideration. More productivity means you know, more savings, more money, better lifestyle. And then does it lead to lowering the carbon footprint, the energy consumption? So we branded this as Haryali Gram and started implementing with uh, Self-Employed Women's Association, excellent group. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of them. They have more than 3 million members, all women, of course, as their name suggests, across states in India and beyond as well. So currently in about 15 Haryali Grams, there is a suite of 20 different technologies and solutions that people are adopting. And what is heartening to see over, it's still early days, You know, we started implementing this just post-COVID, if I can use the phrase post-COVID, but, you know, once things started opening up and we already see there is an increasing amount of interest, more and more people want to know about these solutions. You know, these are more efficient, the best in best technology in ceiling fans, for example, you know, if they can have it in an affordable way. And it's not just about technology. Anything that has to be piloted has to build trust. So it has to be, how do they pay this? Is there a financial solution? Is there a technical solution? You know, because if you just provide products, but not after sales service, then there is no trust and then you ruin the experience forever. 
So how do you provide you know, local technical expertise after sales services as well? How do you make sure incentives which have been announced by central government, state government, are actually accessible? And there are just fascinating insights when you start working in villages. For example, you know, India has a tremendous amount of focus on solar water pumps. India announced one of the largest renewable energy schemes probably in the world called KUSUM, which is you know, a beautiful acronym like many others. But primarily it provides incentives to, to switch from diesel-based water pumps to solar water pumps. Now, one of the states required anybody who's applying for subsidy under KUSUM, which is you know significant 40% upfront cost, to produce documents of land holding signed by every landholder, like whoever has rights to that land, agricultural land, has to sign those documents. Now, just getting this document for families in villages was so problematic because, you know, land gets split. I mean, we've all seen those movies from 60s, 70s, right? There's always families fighting over lands. And then, so who has clear rights? How do you get people that you never talked to who are sworn enemies, former families to sign off on those documents? So issues like that, you know, implementation challenges need to be solved. So once you have this policy support, implementation support, last mile implementation support, you have a financial solution, you have a technology with post-sale service as well, you have local skills, then the potential is enormous. Our very preliminary analysis, you know, about 86 tons of CO2 savings per village from just three or four solutions, 100 tons per village, and India has 600,000 villages. We're talking about a third or fourth of India's total carbon emissions. And that's like a chunk of global emissions that only India's villages can address. So opportunities are there in, you know, every sphere, every phase, every political jurisdiction in India. Thank you for that insight. And honestly, uh, I was reading through the project Green Villages. It's a great initiative. The only thing which I feel, which, which I guess would be the most important is access to finance. And this is, so even if we would like to do a lot of stuff, we can't undermine the importance of finance and access to finance and pretty much all these incentives. I'm sure that the access of finance part is also being covered in the Haryali Green Villages. And I think there's a report which was out in June 22, which I'm just going through. It's a, it's a great, uh, I mean, I have to go through the entire report, but I can see that MNRE uh, additional secretary, Vandana Kumar, released it in, in a workshop. There are fond memories of me working, like us working for her team and, um, and they work very closely with Deepi. There are a lot of different uh, projects which are, which are happening right now under DMEO, which is led by Shekhar Bonu, who came from ADB. So it's like a nice, like the entire world is like, when I actually joined EY from World Bank and different side of things, people like Shekhar Bonu, we used to meet as clients, like at one podium, we used to discuss, okay, what are the sourcing challenges which you're facing, Siddharth? I mean, I'm, I'm facing all sort of sourcing challenges. What are you facing? You tell me from the Philippines sort of thing, because ADB is considered to be great in terms of their sourcing mechanisms. And now it is like the entire cycle has like changed. I became a consultant and Shikhar uh, Dr. Bonu went on to become like leading Neeti and then obviously Amitabh Kant leaving Neeti. It's like a, it's such a nice world where we, we work in while we are Indians 
but i guess wherever we work it we have left a pretty much a global impact and we should be we should be definitely taking a moment to pause and at least do a little bit of backpatting if no no one else is doing it for us but i guess i mean yeah i'm just i just took a 2 minutes breather but this is great initiative sabin i mean congratulations on this this is this is freaking amazing and coming back i know that your interest lies your core speciality lies in the in the buildings part and how exactly the buildings are playing a crucial role in making sure that the world is a little better place to live in because obviously buildings will leave a lot of uh, of its footprints while you're working for so long within the buildings pretty much after post your icicii days since the time you've finished your yale program what all you learned at yale were you able to implement in the real world in terms of what are the role of buildings and getting buildings right at the first time so the resilient buildings i was just reading one report by same waba i don't know whether you heard this name same is global urban leader at the world bank he's a good friend and he has been working and in fact i met him almost just before covid on a global water and sanitation forum it was called as global forum but it was happening in india so a lot of people were, were visiting so he's as passionate as pretty much you are on resilient buildings and how much these buildings can actually create or cover the future and it's very like when you read stuff like this which is kind of non conventional it's not it's not light reading it is a heavy intense reading and when you read these stuff you really question yourself really these things have such kind of impact and was i living under a rock i mean i didn't even know while i'm working in climate finance and climate justice and and clean energy and energy transition one would not even think how much buildings are important in getting pretty much everything correct at the, because it is just a, as i said it's like it's a very nicely carved out rules and protocols so again my question is like whatever you've learned at yale were you able to be implement in the at the ground one may may not and how that helped and second the follow on question was what do you feel where exactly the buildings and the roles of buildings would be from this point onwards yeah so if if you haven't been to the campus of uh, um, you know Yale School of Environment I have. Uh, you have yeah, great yeah. yeah i would recommend to folks who are listening and haven't been I to love check it. it out i love it yeah. the the kind of uh, those those like harry potterish <laughs> architecture i just love it it is awesome one of the signature buildings that the school of environment as it is now called it was called forestry and environmental studies when i was there is this building called croon hall which is barn shaped a yellow colored very yes. distinct yes, building yes 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 i've seen that yeah 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 i've seen that yeah it's a case study in sustainability so even when i was a graduate student there one of my you know graduate teaching assistant projects was working on sustainability and working especially on croon hall and how do we make it more efficient which is a very hard task because it has everything that you can think of in a building you know the best kind of space conditioning technologies on demand ventilation not you know just cooling or heating the building unnecessarily but only when it is needed in the shade passive cooling features you know the design itself the orientation of the building everything solar panels you know generating a part of the energy so yeah i think i i really got interested in buildings right then and 
as you mentioned, you know, buildings are a third of the energy consumption in U.S., in India, in many countries. And especially for a developing country like India, you go to any major city, you'll see new building projects, new apartments, you know, new commercial activity happening everywhere. So they offer tremendous opportunity to do things right the first time and lock in energy savings for decades. You know, buildings have been around for 100 years. You go to Yale campus and you see, you know, 200-year-old buildings. So now the decisions that we take now, the design that we build now, is largely going to be determining how the energy footprint lies going forward. So starting from the very foundation, you know, the minimum energy consumption in a building, which is determined by the Building Energy Code, um, India has Energy Conservation Building Code, ECBC. There was an amendment to the Energy Conservation Act very recently. India's president signed it, I think, this week, So, which you know, mandates building energy codes in commercial buildings in India, also extends that to residential buildings. So there's tremendous opportunity to, to have at least that minimum level of energy efficiency for every building. But then going beyond it, you know, there is just... As one of my colleagues, David Goldstein, he's a guru on energy efficiency globally, he says there's nothing better than zero, right? So if the focus is on zero, zero energy, zero carbon, you know, net decarbonization, so how do we make sure that the buildings that we are setting up now are set up for that level of operations rather than, you know, 20 years, 30 years later, retrofitting and making major overhauls in that process already consuming you know, 30 years of excess emissions. So they offer tremendous opportunity. What is also overlooked are just building rooftops. And I'm not talking about you know, large industrial warehouses, but even houses. You know, just We did this very cool project on cool roofs in you know, a slum in Hyderabad in 2015, I believe, 2015-16 with IIIT Hyderabad, and they monitored the before-after temperature and indoor temperature. So cool roofs, first of all, you know, is a broad name for anything that increases the reflectivity of the roof and also emissivity. So the roofs don't absorb energy, and also whatever sunlight is incident, is most of it is reflected back. It can be done through special paints, or if not, just even in you know, just white color paint, Color white in general has a higher reflectivity than other colors, as you know, polar bears, you know, and yeah, all examples in nature around us. Or it can be done through ceramic tiles, have been used in India for years. You'll still go to, you know, households in Gujarat, Rajasthan, you'll see ceramic broken tiles on rooftops. It can even be a membrane which is waterproof, especially in, in houses and villages. You provide a membrane which makes it more durable. Uh, provides storm retention and has a high reflectivity. So just cool roofs can lead to indoor temperature being lower than 3 to 5 degrees centigrade compared to conventional roofs. And, you know, in peak summer, this 3 to 5 degrees centigrade has an impact on actually saving lives. We just did, uh, you know, published new research, a, a multi-partner research in India that suggests, you know, in just increasing cool roof area in Ahmedabad from 5% which is currently, if you look at Google map of Ahmedabad city, you know, 8 million people, all these dense housing, 
currently about 5% of the roofs are what you could call, you know, white roofs or cool roofs. But if you were to increase this to 20%, either through policy or, you know, market or just awareness, it can save tons of lives. It can save more than, you know, 1,300 lives in 2030 just because cool roofs will reduce energy demand. And energy demand is met through currently, you know, a largely fossil fuel powered grid, which leads to air pollution. So it not only saves energy, but it leads to better air quality, which in turn has health benefits. So you see, it's like a complete, just, there's just so much intersectionality. Cool roofs is just one of the solutions. You, you can have rooftop solar, you can have green roofs if the conditions are right. You know, you can grow stuff on roofs. So I'm very excited about, you know, buildings in general and some of these new technological solutions. But there are also equipment in buildings like air conditioners that have a tremendous impact. Less than 10% of households in India have air conditioners, which is which is remarkably sad because, you know, India is such a hot country. And so people don't have access to basic thermal comfort that folks here in the West take for granted. But air conditioners have a very heavy carbon footprint, have, you know, energy footprint. How do you make sure that air conditioners are most efficient, but also use what very few people realize, climate-friendly refrigerants. Refrigerants are just such a geeky topic that, you know, it doesn't get talked about much. It can have a major climate implication for the world. This is very interesting. I would I actually, I felt like listening to you on and on. Just for our listeners' knowledge, what exactly, as per your research, what exactly is uh, the kind of projection which you have? If What exactly the role of buildings in terms of numbers, if you talk about, say, for example, if you take India into context, what exactly the situation is like and how much we have to like cut down of what in order to reach what? So if just give everything in the perspective, maybe it will be easier for our listeners to absorb that. Sure. Yeah. So ultimately, you know, the goal would be to have net zero buildings. You know, so what does net zero even mean? You know, it's in a lot of countries, states have talked about, you know, we want to go to net zero by X day. You know, India has net zero goals by 2070. But what does it even, even mean? You know, there can be net zero energy. There can be net zero carbon. Does it mean that net zero means you don't have to pay any energy bills because, you know, it's net zero? But that's not typically how it works, right? Because there is one definition which is better than the other and another one which is better than this. So it depends on, you know, where do you draw the boundaries? If you're looking at just what is happening within the building, within the complex, then that's typically called scope one. You just what is being used there and then you extend it to the energy coming into the building the water coming into the building scope to look at transportation every supply that goes in so you know where you draw the boundary determines how you're defining that net zero and then net zero carbon obviously is better than you know net zero energy but they're not always the same and net zero energy doesn't mean that you know if you have 100% renewable energy you'll have net zero because renewable energy is intermittent there'll be times when you know you either need storage or you need other sources so there are tons of consideration that go into determining this but again going back to you know wise words of my colleague that there's nothing better than zero so that's the ultimate goal so currently commercial buildings in india are are at various stages, you know, there are about 17 states in India that have notified the Building Energy Code 
compliance levels vary. There are a few states like Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, that are more advanced in implementing building energy efficiency. If you look at voluntary labels, which is these LEED, GRIHA, IGPC has its own label, India's Green Building Council, uh, there are several of those voluntary labels. And they, they vary in terms of how rigorous they are in determining various levels of greenness of a building. India has very high coverage if you look at uh, those labels. And yet, what we have currently is nothing compared to, you know, what is going to exist in the next 20, 30 years because, you know, India is rapidly urbanizing. India still has uh, a growing population. India still has a lot of unmet demand for shelter. So more and more people need housing, more and more people need commercial buildings. It's a developing country, as you know. So it isn't just about covering existing buildings, making sure that they are, you know, energy efficient. But also, you know, how do we make sure that buildings of the future are constructed right with the net zero goal in mind? That's really interesting, uh, Samir. And uh, I've never thought that uh, an energy practitioner would be so eloquent in in explaining uh, such daunting terms. I mean, hats off for that. I was a kid and I, I think my dad got a new refrigerator in my house and it said CFC free, chlorofluorocarbon free. And just because of not anything else, just the name, it sounded so rhyming. We started making fun of it because obviously we didn't know much about it. But then again, if we talk about HFCs and CFCs, and I mean, not many people are actually talking about it. And I know for sure that while you're working on the buildings and different aspects of buildings, yes, buildings will have, depends on which part of the world or what is the kind of infrastructure you really resides in that country. I'm not talking about India specifically right now, but what exactly is the entire CFC, HFC? Is it like faded out? Is it still there? How is, if it's there, how much is it in there in the atmosphere? How can we reduce it? And if it is there, uh, whatever the quantity is uh, and whichever rate it is being pumped into the environment, what are the major impacts on our health and what is the next path? Sure, thank you, and thanks for sharing that tidbit from your childhood about CFCs. Interestingly, you know, there was this meme talking about whatever happened to the ozone hole. Why does nobody talk about it recently? You know, but but that's because of this one of the most successful environment treaties in the world, the Montreal Protocol, came. You know, the world listened to scientists for once, came together, acted on phasing down CFCs which were ozone-depleting substances, and they were creating that ozone hole. The world transitioned away from those, and the ozone hole got healed over a period of time. So they've been, you know, despite what we talked about COP at the beginning of this podcast, this chaotic process can sometimes, you know, deliver results. It does take time, though. But similarly, you know, now Montreal Protocol has also started monitoring and regulating HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, which are commonly used in refrigerators, as you talked about, but also in air conditioning equipment, specifically in room air conditioners, chillers, um, some of the other large commercial cooling equipment as well. 
And these HFCs have a very high global warming potential compared to carbon dioxide. Can be a thousand, ten thousand times more than a single molecule of CO2. They trap heat. They don't. They're not as long-lived as CO2. CO2 from the industrial times is still there in the atmosphere, which is why it's such a tricky problem. And we have a finite budget. HFCs dissipate after some time, but just because. They are just so heavy, so strongly global warming that their overall impact on climate change is very substantial. In fact, NRDC research suggested that just following the Montreal Protocol came together in Kigali, Rwanda, and signed Kigali Agreement where countries decided to phase down these hydrofluorocarbons. So our research indicates that if the world was to just follow this Kigali implementation on timelines, it can have a net impact of half degree of avoided global warming. And you know the difference between half a degree centigrade is between you know a terrible outcome to a devastating outcome. You know it, it's so profound if you look at those varying degrees of climate impacts. So HFCs are potent. HFCs are rapidly increasing in the atmosphere. And a large amount of those are coming from air conditioning. Fortunately, you know, India is also one of the signatories of the Kigali Agreement, Kigali Amendment. India ratified. So countries, after they sign the agreement, also have to follow a political process of ratifying it and in actually telling the protocol that we are ratifying it. India ratified it last year. India, China, and U.S. were three of the largest countries not having ratified Kigali Agreement. But both, all three of them have done so now. So, going back to our, you know, question, your question about how can U.S. and India work together? Here is another opportunity. You know, U.S. states, U.S. industry has, even before U.S. had ratified the Kigali Amendment, has started working on monitoring how refrigerants are used. What is the type of refrigerant that is being used, and setting you know standards for those. There is potential for the two countries to collaborate, making sure that you know HFCs technology. Because for every refrigerant, you need an alternative, and already a lot of these alternatives are available. You know, if you look at the side of air conditioners, you can tell even if it says eco-friendly in advertising, if it says R410A, which is the name of a refrigerant. It's horrible. It's probably causing more global warming through the refrigerant than through the energy use. So, there are alternatives. India air conditioning industry has, to a large extent, already transitioned to a medium global warming potential refrigerant. It's commercially known as R32, but that is also so. It's this potential is measured in terms of multiples of CO2. So R32 is about 750. GWP global warming potential, but eventually we need to get to zero. You know, any refrigerant use when it goes into that atmosphere should not cause any global warming effect at all. So there is uh, an opportunity to transition, transform. These refrigerants are used in in cars, in you know, mobile air conditioners. So again, you know, you can buy the best car, the best feature, but how many people even ask? You know, what is the refrigerant in the air conditioner? And I hope, if nothing else, you know, if if the audience of your podcast listens and pays attention to what's on the side of the air conditioner, what's the refrigerant in the car, in the refrigerator, that in itself will make a difference. 
I love it. This last piece of oh. nugget coming from the cars. Oh my god. This is like really oh my god. It's those that was the aha moment for me. Oh my god. Okay. So yes, while the respective kind of impact uh, coming from CFC and NHFCs might be different across different organizations which actually manufactures these air conditioners for cars i'm sure there must be some sort of global protocol they they must be following which really reduces while yes people are going the ev route a lot but then in that ev on those evs there is also an air conditioner so absolutely absolutely so it just defeats the purpose and i'm not sure to which degree it defeats the purpose but definitely defeats the purpose like we are talking about you're talking about reducing and then you're actually adding as well not sure how much what is the quantum of that but i mean that's something for me to to actually do a research and get on to in terms of like what is the kind of impact would there be is this the marginal is it substantial if it's substantial then what the heck why aren't even people talking about this and forget about talking people should be taking actions right now this is a good good point so i'm just trying to wrap around all the thoughts what we spoke about and honestly this has been one of the most one of the most smooth interviews i've had in the recent past as smooth as virgin atlantic airways it was so smooth i mean you're just a very natural speaker as orator samir i mean uh, again you. it's nobody really trains for that it just comes naturally it's very organic what exactly you feel as like the role because of your particular role in your organizations what exactly you feel as a role india can play in addressing this entire catastrophe i while i know that you said and we all are aware that it's not one country's problem but if it has to come down to one country and if that country is india in 2023 because 2022 is like few days we are getting to 2023 so what are those things and perhaps like there may be multiple but what are your top 3 yes that's such a good question with a, you know very difficult to answer india has a balancing act when it comes to global climate debate you know india is also the most one of the most vulnerable countries to climate impacts we have a large coastline you know we are prone to droughts extreme heat waves you know floods landslides we've seen all of those climate disasters already happening in india so india india can say you know we are the ones suffering the most and it will be justified in saying so india can say we did not cause climate change and it will be justified in saying so india can say you know we need more finance and more technology to transition and all of those are fair us but at the same time india has a responsibility india is the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world even though per capita emissions are low but you know it all adds up india has this unique moment in time when it is still defining how the society of future will look like so india has the opportunity to set a new paradigm of what the economy of 21st century could be india also has a responsibility whether it chooses to accept take it on fully or not to speak for smaller developing underdeveloped countries which you know which which don't have as strong a voice but which suffer because of climate change as well so you know countries small island developing state as you know cop lingo that you're familiar with there are many of them for which it's an existential crisis you know so can india support those voices from the south speak up for them and at the same time 
you know, be mindful of its own actions while, you know, legitimately demanding that the Western developed world do more. Like I said, it's a balancing act, but it also gives a good opportunity for India to show that leadership. You know, if you look at the trajectory of time, India has always been globally you know, very powerful and significant. I mean, forget about colonialism, but India has always been a significant part of global population. A fifth of humanity already lives in India, you know, if you look at the new population numbers. So it's hard to ignore a country of that size, but you know, with that influence comes a responsibility. India is now also the host for G20 in the world. India, is the, India has a presidency. G20 are the largest economies in the world. How does India put forth this climate agenda, the, uh, the sustainable development agenda? How does India make sure that the Western world keeps its promises to you know, the developing countries? How does India make sure that the voices of you know, the smaller, less developed countries who are suffering even more and have an urgent crisis are at hand are heard, and at the same time, how does India, you know, balance its own trajectory of development to make sure it has you know, the smallest footprint possible while providing prosperity to its citizens? Because that's a priority as well. So it's a balancing act, you know, but it's uniquely challenging and it's a unique opportunity. It's indeed a very daunting task, and I'm not sure how exact Indian authorities will be able to take it up. It's again, it's not, there's no magic formula to achieve all of this. Whatever you just said for any country, forget about India, like even the US might feel a little wobbly if they had to do so many different things. I can see what's happening at the infra bill right now in the US. So it's very easy to make mistakes. But then again, this is such an enlightening sort of uh, one hour we spent today. And I'm sure you, you've had a lot to come in the future uh, in order to make sure the public policy is meeting the tech and that kind of a tech marries public policy is where those ideas really can really generate magic. And I really am fascinated with the kind of work NRDC is doing, honestly. I'm, I'm really fascinated and I would love to chat maybe offline sometimes. And if, uh, and if you're coming to New York, as you said, you are, I don't want to eat up into your family time, but then if you're coming to New York, it'll be good to catch up for a coffee. Sure, let's stay connected. It's a pleasure speaking with you, Siddharth, and um, thank you for inviting me. The pleasure was all, all mine, and I think it was mutual too. But thanks a lot, and uh, let's stay connected. Bye.